Welcome to One Symphony, a podcast that explores classical music's relevance in our modern lives. I'm conductor Devin Patrick Hughes, and I'm here to share with you stories and conversations with musicians, composers, and artistic entrepreneurs that aim to unite us into one symphonic world. Composer Sean Fryer grew up in Los Angeles and has been described by Slate Magazine as having a sensibility that is refreshingly new and solidly mature and takes joy in the process of discovery and in the continual experience of suspense and surprise that good classical music has always championed. A winner of the Rome Prize, Fryer composes for ensembles of all stripes, from orchestra and chamber ensembles to a junk car percussion concerto, a laptop orchestra, and a microtonal piano duo. He's been commissioned by ensembles the world over, including the Los Angeles Philharmonic, the Berlin Philharmonic, the American Composers Orchestra, and Alarm Will Sound. Sean, welcome to One Symphony. I wanted to start by asking, you started out as a jazz pianist. Can you tell me how you made the leap from rock and blues to classical music? Sure. Well, my first idol was Jerry Lee Lewis. And so before I was even oh playing piano or could really read music, I was trying to figure out how to play pretty much 12 bar blues on the piano. And I was fortunate that I always had piano teachers that encouraged me to improvise. So it was always fun. And um, from there, my first, you know, quote unquote compositions were me trying to write these 12 bar blues pieces. And I think one of the fun things about that is that it made it such that there was a really hazy line between what was composition and what was improvisation for me. Um, So I was just always creating, even before, well before I was actually writing anything down. And so, you know, the only real change from doing more blues and rock and roll to to classical was just an aesthetic one. And that came from eventually having a a new piano teacher, a piano slash composition teacher who started exposing me to classical music. And so I think the way I got into it, that is still very much a part of my DNA. And it's really just that my musical interests and the music that I was exposed to just expanded as I went on. And what were some of the compositions or composers that helped you with the transition? Oh, I think like a lot of composers, I uh, went through a period of doing style compositions. Um, So I certainly wrote pieces in the style of Beethoven, quite a bit of Chopin, uh, Shostakovich, uh, and then I think, well, Shostakovich is 20th century. I think maybe Stravinsky was the big one that got me into the 20th century. Um, and then I recall hearing uh, Steve Reich for the first time my senior year of high school. So yeah, those were the ones that really kind of got me into the 20th century just in time to to start college. Are any of those pieces still actively performed? Oh, I'm afraid those are all juvenilia. I'm trying to... <laughs> um, I mean, I have recordings and scores. I think the thing is... It's interesting to go back to those and to see if you can find little elements of what you were doing back then that you can still see in your own music today. And I think for me, there's maybe a certain kind of 
uh, behavior or spontaneity, just a certain kind of energy. But I, I'd say the, the sounds of my music have changed so much that putting something out there into the world that feels like a 19th century style composition, it isn't really what I want to do. I suppose if someone was really interested, I wouldn't, I wouldn't stop them from some of those pieces, but I can't say that they're on my website. Your style, uh, especially some of your chamber works, for me really seem to blur the lines between acoustic and electronic to where you have this acoustic piece and it almost could be an electronic piece and, and also kind of blur the lines of time. And I read recently somewhere Beethoven said that time doesn't exist because he was exploring all these, because through the Freemasons, he was exploring all these different, you know, Buddhism, the Bhagavad Gita, all these things that we don't normally associate with a composer from Bonn in the in the 18th century. But to me, your music really blurs lines in many ways. And it, it does take that time aspect out of the equation sometimes. Do you, do you have any sense of that? I love that quote from Beethoven. I didn't know that. Uh, but I think that's really, really relevant with composition. I mean, I don't know if I'd say necessarily that, you know, there is no time or it doesn't exist, but it's really up to us to define what it is. Because we've, I think we've all had experiences where two minutes go by in a piece of music and it feels like much longer. And then 40 minutes can go by and you can't believe it. And sure, some of that might be that whether you're like, you like the piece or not, but you get to kind of define all of the, you could say the rate at which important road marks might come up in a piece of music. So for some pieces that develop really quickly, the content's really dense, really important things are happening all the time, every few seconds. And then there could be, say, a piece of like early minimalist music where uh, not much happens or something happens and then you're dealing with that something for 10 or 20 minutes. And I think certainly something that I explore, and I think it's maybe a luxury that a lot of composers have now who borrow from a lot of different influences and genres is that part of your composition, the way that it speaks and is, is creative is borrowing these different or using these different senses of time that different kinds of music have. And I think to what you said, that's definitely something that I'm very interested in where there will be some passages of music where you feel like you can hardly keep up. And then other passages often right after those where you're suddenly in, in suspense, not in that you're feeling suspenseful, but that the music feels suspended. Nothing seems to be happening and you're kind of reeling from that. I find that interesting because I feel like we have experiences like that in life all the time where things are very dense. Every second feels visceral and unique and then sometimes feels like nothing's happening for a long period of time. Like a Bruckner symphony or something. Like a, <laughs> right, yeah. The last movement of a Bruckner symphony. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a fun thing to, to mess with. And I mean, I suppose listeners have different senses of time. So I wouldn't claim that there's some, that a composer has this power to universally control how everybody's going to experience time in their piece. But hopefully you can get it in a way that a lot of people will kind of feel what you're after. As to what you said about blurring the lines between electronic music and acoustic music, yes, definitely. That's something I'm, I'm very interested in. I guess I, I kind of have fun seeing how much I can sometimes get acoustic instruments to not sound like themselves, especially when I'm blending them together. For example, I have a piece I wrote about 10 years ago called Clunker Concerto. It's for an orchestra and then a percussion quartet group of soloists who are all playing junk car parts. And one of the things that I wanted to avoid was having the piece just be, 
I guess you could say a gimmick or kind of a polarizing the junk versus the orchestra. Instead, I wanted to find ways where you're hearing a sound, you can see what everyone's doing on stage, and yet you're really having a tough time figuring out what are those sounds, which instruments are playing right now. I just find it kind of fascinating to, to have all of these sounds that we already know with the traditional orchestral instruments, and yet something's happening in front of you and you really have to scratch your head trying to figure out how how it happened, whether it's a particular doubling of two different instruments or the instruments doing something that's not the normal way they play. Yeah, and in this Clunker Concerto, uh, I think you said something to the effect of it was your opportunity to give instruments that didn't make it another go. Uh, and if, if people can check out this, it was, it was done by the American Composers Orchestra, I believe. And you went to this junkyard literally and took like brake drums and fenders and, and hubcaps. And you had to learn like how to, like what pitches you were going to get out of them, where to strike the instruments, I would say. And you had to actually had to teach the percussion quartet, like how to play them essentially, correct? Yeah, it was uh, the, the American Composers Orchestra had a, um, a program for adventurous new music called Playing It Unsafe, in which they solicited... Uh, proposals for pieces that couldn't normally be done on an orchestra concert, either because they'd require too much rehearsal time or there were logistical challenges. Um, so I thought this proposal checked all of the boxes, but I didn't really think that they would pick it. And there's probably nothing more unsafe than a junkyard, right? Definitely leave your kids at home on that one. You know, that's it's so funny that you say that because, well, yes, when I was um when I was first scouring these junkyards looking for car parts, I was definitely getting a lot of cockeyed looks from people because I, you know, I was there with like a violin bow and percussion mm -hmm. mallets. I didn't really look like I was, you know, just looking for a spare rear view mirror. And also there was a documentary filmmaker following me. They were quite concerned about that. That was, um, I think that was when a show called Junkyard Wars was on. And so <laughs> this junkyard I was at was concerned that we were filming a reality TV show, but eventually we explained that it was, it was for this piece. But the funny thing about that you mentioned, you know, leave your kids at home is that Oh, a few years ago in 2018, a group in uh, New York called Face the Music at the Kaufman Music Center. It's a really high level ensemble for, I think, middle school and high school kids. And they wanted to do this piece. And I thought in a weird way, it is kind of pedagogical. It's certainly opening up the people to a huge, hugely different sound world. So they asked me if they could do the piece. And I said, sure, but the piece hadn't been played in a few years. And I had had all the junk in a uh, in a storage facility. And I decided like, it's just, it's not worth continuing to do this. The piece had a good life. I'm going to let the junk go. <clears throat> so I wow. gave it away on Craigslist. Wow. <laughs> few, gave it away. Okay. Of, yeah. Oh, it really made someone's day because you know, there's a lot of metal in there. Some of it was yeah. worth something. Yeah. Yeah. But then a few months after that, I got um, a call from this group and they asked if they could do it. And I said, yes, but I don't have the junk anymore. So you guys would need to go find it again. Fortunately, they thought that was really fun. So they actually took the kids on a field trip to it's a junkyard oh my gosh, to, so cool. to recreate the uh, the original setup. Weren't a lot of the, the rehearsal process, I mean, you were changing notes based on the junk you had. So w would you have to adapt the score or create a, you know, an updated version or something? <laughs> that's, a, that's a good question. I think that was, well, the most common question I got about that piece was, you, know, like you, you put so much work into this, but can, is anybody ever going to do it again? Um, 
And well, that, that, that's never never been asked right. by any composer before, right? Right. So that, <laughs> that could be that. That holds just as true for a string quartet as for a junk car con, a percussion concerto. I did try to pick things that I thought could be recreated, you know, objects that weren't one of a kind. So, for example, with rims, they were tuned to specific pitches, but I just believed that there are rims of tons of different sizes. If I say that you need have to get one tuned to F sharp, I believe that there are a lot out there. Um, you might have to look around for a little bit. The hubcaps, I was really surprised when you bow hubcaps, they have tons of different pitches such that not any old hubcap you pick up might have all the right notes, but I don't think you'd have to go through more than a couple to find the right one. The most specific thing was a, um, I think it was a passenger side Fender from a Toyota Corolla, but it had to be between 1988 and 1992. That oh, was wow. the- that would have been my, my dad's car. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, on the one hand, all right, that's getting old now. On the other hand, they're still out there. And wow. yeah. uh, I, I did a quick peek on eBay and it's really not that hard to find them. So I think they got everything yeah. on in the junkyard yeah. except for the, the Fender, which they got on eBay for, I think it was 50 bucks. So you're a proponent, don't get rid of that junk, make it into an instrument. Yeah, I mean, well, it was a really fun exercise, or maybe I'd say a challenge for me, because you have all these things that are, you know, not the most graceful instruments. They're not meant to be instruments. I think there was something beautiful about about the sounds and something that really augmented the sound of the orchestra to throw them in the mix. But it was really challenging because you can't you can't just write a tune and hope it works. So all of the ideas I had to come up with came out of really analyzing these these things. So I'd you know hang them up in my apartment and put mics on them and hit them with every kind of mallet in every position and say, okay, they have the following pitches or these kinds of gestures work well. The majority of my pieces don't don't do stuff like that. But I actually think in a more in a more general way, ha- taking some kind of really extreme restriction like the junk or preparing an instrument, let's say like you take a guitar, but you put some paper clips or furniture putty on the string, something that really messes with the sound. Something like that can really open your ears up to new possibilities um, because you don't know what's going to happen um, when you start playing the instrument. And I found that often I'll start playing with something like that and you know, I just hear like a melody or something that I find really interesting that I wouldn't have come up with if I were just playing at the piano. Um, and so I might not use that piece of junk or that prepared guitar in the actual piece, but it helped me come up with an idea that I wouldn't have come up with otherwise. Well, I think you were the first to, to come up with this because this looking into this piece of yours um, brought me back to, I think around 2014 or 15, we did a concerto for found piano harp and or- orchestra was by Mark McCoyne and Tom Hagerman of Devochka. And they find these pianos, just old, probably in the junkyard, and they just use everything they can to beat on them and make all these sounds and bow on them. It was, and it was a quite beautiful piece, actually. So it's cool that well, you did great. it first, though. <laughs> well, <laughs> there's room for a lot of people. Um, but that's, yeah, there's something really beautiful, especially about that, that these old junker pianos that by conventional standards have come to the ends of their lives, get, you know, get to be showcased on a concert stage that probably those pianos were never good enough to, to be, to be on the concert stage um, as traditional pianos. Yeah, that's, that's really fun. A little bit of work. Both of these pieces involve um, performers who are 
really on board because it's a lot of yeah, extra definitely. work to acquire definitely. the junk or to acquire the pianos. And I think there's a big difference over the past 10 years as to what classical performers are willing to, to try. <laughs> um, I think now, you know, it's like everything's game because you just have to be so versatile in this world. Well, speaking of pianos, or at least Hammer, your breakout piece was Velvet Hammer 12 years ago uh, with Now Ensemble. And I, I just love to kind of ask you about what went into that piece. It's my understanding that that was on a composer's kind of workshop. They kind of discovered it and, and just fell in love with it. And I can see why. Can you talk about, um, you know, the history of that piece and maybe a little bit about your collaboration with Now? Sure. Yeah. Now Ensemble, right, is a group that now I think I've worked with for, we started in 2009 together. Um, and that piece came out of a, uh, a workshop at grad school where um, I and a couple of the members of that group, um, the instrumentation of that group, by the way, is flute, clarinet, electric guitar, piano, and bass. So it um, you know, bridges the gap between that acoustic, more traditional chamber ensemble sound and the more electronic, non-classical sound. At that point, the group had been around for about five years. So they had commissioned a decent amount of repertoire, but were still a a newer ensemble. And there was a lot of really great music for them. And what I had found was that most of it treated the guitar in a way in which it behaved like a, a very nice member of the chamber ensemble. It was very well blended with everybody else. And that works really, really well. But um, I thought I would try to do something different that I you know, give them a piece that I didn't think they had already. And so my idea for Velvet Hammer was to start with the sound of the electric guitar really is the skeleton of the piece in that everybody else in the ensemble you can almost think of as we're kind of living inside of the electric guitar sound and, and kind of coming out of it. So a lot of that came down to uh, various kinds of effects pedals I was using on the guitar. Um, so at the opening of that piece, the guitar is playing with the delay pedal and you hear all of the other instruments kind of doing their own version of that delay, even though they're not playing with delay pedals themselves, they're just acoustic. Um, there are other moments where the guitar is playing with really heavy distortion, and I tried to come up with sounds in the in the other instruments that could do that. For example, if the flute plays with a really airy sound, and you get a lot of, it actually blends really, really well with all the nice. the high frequencies coming out of the distortion pedal. Um, so that was really my, in one sense, you know, to what you talked about at the beginning. That was probably my first kind of deep dive into trying to find ways to make acoustic instruments sound electric. Um, and I think going on after that, that continued to be a bigger and bigger part of at least a lot of my pieces, not all of them.
getting back to time from earlier, uh, you have the Now Ensemble, and now you have your your newest piece, which is a full album, Before and After. The only thing we're missing is Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow. <laughs> but uh, this is an incredible album. It's really the lifespan of civilizations, uh, you know, going, you know, zooming way out, probably looking at the millions, if not billions years mark. I don't know how much time you thought about this. Uh, but I'd love if you could just talk about uh, some of these and, and the progression of this and sort of the symphonic and dramatic implications of before and after, which everybody um, can, can listen to uh, wherever you listen to your music. Sure. I think the initial idea for before and after came from a year in uh, between 2011 and 2012 when I was living in Rome. And uh, one of the things about Rome that's really different from where I'm from, Los Angeles, <laughs> is that there's a very palpable sense of long history in Rome in that, uh, you know, civilization is literally just built on top of itself over and over and over again. So you can, you know, walk into a, a, a business and then if you go into the basement floor, there's a 16th century church or something like that. And then if you go below that, there's an ancient Roman temple. Um, whereas in Los Angeles, if a building's, you know, 50 years old, it's pretty old and should probably be torn down. Um, it's, so there was something about being in Rome for a year that I think just made me very aware of, um, everything that had come, come before and how there was a continuity from then to now, but there were also just a lot of stories and civilizations and cultures that were, were totally gone. And so that gave me the idea for this piece that, as you said, is kind of, it's both zoomed out and sometimes really zoomed in, um, but thinking about the lifespans of civilizations, kind of ranging from, you know, you could say hopeful beginnings to um, maybe periods of rapid growth to uh, nostalgia for golden eras to times when we think that maybe we've really gone too far or past some threshold we shouldn't have passed. Um, issues that may, may be relevant now. And I would say the piece isn't really meant as like a linear story, um, partly because I want to give the listener a sense that I want to, I guess, give them enough, enough of sense of what each movement is about that um, it kind of leads you in a direction, but, but that other issue or other aspects of it are up to you. For example, if you want to be thinking on the scale of billions of years, or you just want to think on the scale of you know, our own culture that we're in now, both of those are great. And I'm sure you'd, you'd kind of come up with different, different interpretations based on that.
It starts with chant and then it ends with the done deal. Of course, you have incredible imaginary pictures that you build in between. But can you just maybe talk about that progression and maybe the dichotomy between the beginning and the end, or is it the same? <laughs> Great question. I feel like chant is um, chant is certainly a uh, on the one hand a piece about beginnings or a hopeful beginning. But then on the other hand, kind of the seeds of the end of the piece, I think, are built into the beginning. So in that sense, it's uh, sort of an introduction for the whole album. In terms of the music itself, I called it chant because I was thinking very much of really medieval chant. Even though the piece isn't just a chant, um, there is like one simple melody, um, or it's really more of like melodic fragment. It's not like a classical melody that weaves itself throughout the ensemble. And like a chant, there are um, cadences, there are ends of phrases, but they often, I think at least to contemporary ears, sound a little bit surprising exactly where something ends, which is something an experience I always have when I listen to medieval chant. And the piece kind of starts with this very these very small building blocks. You could imagine, you know, the very beginnings of civilization, people building the first building or the first group of people getting together. And as the piece goes on, the phrases become a little bit longer, more elaborated, just a little bit more fleshed out, sometimes sweet, until reaching a climax where in a sense, there's kind of a, a feeling of decay at the end, but it's almost, I think of as more of a foreshadowing of things to come, like the seeds of the end are in the, in the beginning of something. So then from there, we go on to another movement that comes directly out of chant called Frontier. And Frontier takes the same sort of textures and colors of chant, but then expands as if civilization was expanding or exploring new unknown territories. Um, so there's very much like a searching quality to that one. And those two definitely go together as a unit. And then we have a one of the bigger movements after that called Spread, uh, which it's a this, this piece I did finish just before COVID. So I wasn't thinking about COVID when I called something spread. I was thinking more of just very rapid growth. There's a fun aspect to it, a breakneck aspect to it, but it's also slightly uncomfortably out of control um, and just keeps going. And then we have a, a hard cut there to three movements that I see as running one into the next. Um, the first one's called Cradle. Cradle, compared to Spread, I think suddenly feels like you've been taken somewhere very, very far away. Uh, maybe you've just retreated into your mind. When I mentioned earlier, nostalgia for a golden era, I think Cradle's the best example of that. So it's a really sweet sounding, kind of simple, almost like a children's music box. In terms of the sounds that I use, I have some of the players playing melodicas instead of their traditional instruments. The pianist is playing both piano and a toy piano. So it's a very different color from the rest of the piece. And then that one goes into a short interstitial movement called Artifact, which I guess I wouldn't say much of, except the image that I had was of a dust-covered artifact in the middle of the desert that you can just barely read something on. And then that leads into um, Rally, which was also the, uh, the single that we released from the album um, before the actual album came out. And my program note for Rally is... Um, Something to the effect of a great coming together, either just in time or just too late. And there's this kind of sense That's of the question. <laughs> right. Right. It might be something we're wondering about ourselves right now for any number of issues. Um, and there's this sense of like push and pull, like there's a lot at stake. There's music that's really hopeful and heroic. There's music that's maybe a little more introspective and sad. And it's kind of a little bit like a 
oh, like a Beethoven symphony. You're really not sure where the movement's going to land until you get to the very end of it. two movements, solo and done deal, also kind of form a unit. I suppose done deal sort of <laughs> says where it is with its title, um, but it's kind of a summation of the entire the entire piece. There is an inevitable feeling to it. Like there's still a kind of, oh, raging against foregone conclusions, but the sense that there is this kind of, <laughs> you're in some kind of vortex and the power of it is pulling you and getting stronger and stronger leading toward the end. But then I do think the very, very end of the piece, as in the last chord, leaves a little bit of ambiguity as to where exactly we've ended up. Well, it's an incredible journey indeed, and I hope everybody will check out Sean Fryer's Before and After. I want to just ask you a couple more questions. You studied, I saw, psychology. I don't think I've ever met a composer uh, who's also studied psychology, or maybe if they have, they haven't told me. Um, but can you tell me how that informs your uh, music making, your composition? Sure. I did a double major in music and psychology. I can't say that I was thinking of psychology as um, always something that would aid my music, even though I think it very much has, but... When I started, you know, I had heard that music was a hard field. So I thought, oh, I'll have another major <laughs> that I did really like, but just in case this music thing doesn't pan out. But I think it's been really helpful in a, in a few ways. One of the biggest challenges for composers is that we get so inside our own heads about our pieces. You know, you spend hours sometimes thinking about a second of music and it becomes really, really hard to try to imagine what that music's actually going to be like for a first time listener. You know it so well, you know the context of it in a way that no one else could. And I think sometimes that can lead to 
particularly for me, the thing that I'm most wary of is getting issues of pacing wrong, where you spend so much time with your material, sometimes you blast through it in a way that's too quick for a first time listener. Other times you could get so precious about it that you spend much way too long with the music. But thinking about oh, the listener's perspective and I guess I could also say certain kinds of cognitive tools I use to try to pull myself out of the piece to listen to a more like a first time listener um, is definitely something I've gotten from psychology. For example, one thing I'll often do when I'm at the stage where uh, I'm writing a piece into the computer so I can hear it play back with MIDI sounds is that um, I will take the piece and do something like transpose it up or down a half step or maybe change the sounds. You know, if it's an orchestra piece, you could make it all oh, piano sounds or all clarinet sounds, just something to kind of disentangle me from what I've gotten used to hearing. And what I found is it's really shocking how much, even though most of the musical material, you know, it's exactly the same, all the relationships are the same, but you transpose it up a semitone and suddenly so much sounds different. And I found that something like that can be really helpful when I'm trying to decide, like, have I done this thing for enough time? Is the pacing right? Do I need to spend more time or less time here? Um, so that's actually something I've ended up encouraging um, my students to do a lot of is when they're just inundated in their piece and they feel like they don't know which way is up anymore um, to just try something like that. Or, you know, you can take it, put it on your phone and take a walk or go for a drive with it. Anything that I think just takes you out of the context in which you've been writing the piece can give you a surprisingly fresh perspective. Yeah. So I, th I think those, those are some of the main ways that it affects my composition. I suppose also in teaching, I think it's very important. Sometimes I make a joke that compositions are often about, uh, you know, half nitty gritty technical work and half therapy, um, partly because when you're talking with, you know, students, you're, you, one of the things that you do have to tease out is like, why are you writing this piece? What does it mean to you? And I think very critically and something that's hard for a lot of composers, especially young composers is what are you actually trying to tell people with this piece? And sometimes I've certainly found with myself that often I have musical intuitions well before I can actually verbally articulate them. So there could be a thing that I do want to express and it just splat comes out in the piece and it, it actually takes a lot of introspection or just a lot of time even after writing the piece before I see, oh, that's what I was trying to do. But hopefully as a teacher, you can try to speed up that process and give people some insight into into what their music is doing that in some intuitive way, of course they know it, but they might not actually like, consciously know it yet. Well, and that's a cool correlation that we both share. We both happen to be in Colorado and uh, you are the professor at University of Denver, Lamont School of Music. We share that. I did my artist diploma there a long time ago. And you, you had said you wouldn't want to have a kind of composition program that churns out the same kind of composer all the time. Uh, can you talk a little bit about what you're trying to impart to students, like even especially post-COVID uh, in terms of uh, encouragement, you know, getting their music out there, uh, what other additional skills are important to develop and maybe how that informs your own process? Sure. Yeah, big question. I guess on the, the music writing aspect of it, yes, I, I agree um, as much as I can. I want students to be their own individual artists. And I really want them to lead with their strengths. You know, I think it's important to remember that you don't need to be a jack of all trades. And often people don't really like jacks of all trades. There are a lot of composers who are really, really amazing at one thing. And that's all they need. You know, you don't need to hear that 
you know, I think it's fine that Steve Reich hasn't written a symphony, for example. And so I think it's, you know, on the one hand, I say that. On the other hand, I think it is important for composers, especially younger composers, to be exposed to a wide variety of musics and, and various kinds of compositional techniques because you don't know right away what kind of composer you want to be. And so I think it's important to not set up arbitrary boundaries where you say, I do this and I don't do that, but you've actually not tried a lot of them. Um, so to, on the one hand, feel like you're when you're studying composition, it really is a playground where you're encouraged to go out of your comfort zone, try things that may or may not work, and then to take all of that back and kind of reflect on what feels right to me, what do I want to be a part of my language, and then move forward from there. So I think that's really critical for every artist to go through that and maybe to really never feel like you're done learning or done experimenting. I think for myself, the thing that gets me excited about composing is that each piece feels like a new challenge. There's something about it that I have not done. And I actually feel like a novice when I try it again, when I try it for the first time, I think sometimes, you know, it makes it more work, but I think I wouldn't really like composing where I felt very in control. Like I know exactly how this piece is going to go. There aren't going to be any issues. Not every composer feels like that, but I think it's important for composers to realize that there can be an element of feeling out of your comfort zone that's actually really important for the writing. As for everything else you said, you're right that there's so much now that goes into the career of being a musician beyond just being good at music. Of course, being good at music is still important. Uh, I mean, some of these things are you know, more mundane that everybody's aware of, but, you know, having a, having a website, having, I think just having your music easy to access is really important, whether that's through a publisher or through, you know, through self-publishing, the fact that um, if people want to score of yours a recording, it's very easy to find. I think one thing that I'm sure you found when you're looking for scores, you might want to program is that you're a busy guy, you have a lot going on. And if you, you find that you have to spend an hour to try to find the thing you want to find, you might just move on to something, something else. So I think having everything just as well set up and as professional as possible is, is really important. I think more and more, it seems that having kind of distinctive, you know, you could say online personality or profile seems to be really important in that there's something about the way that social media works where people can get an almost instantaneous read on what kind of music does this person write? What genre are they in? Who, what audience are they aiming for? You can tell those things before in a quicker way than you can tell by actually listening to all of their music. So that's a that's a tough thing, but it seems just more and more true. I can, I can say it's taken me a, a while to feel like I've gotten onto that because even when I did my undergrad and grad school, which wasn't that long ago, social media was so much less important than it is now. Mm -hmm. Well, that's some great tips as well. And uh, I wanted to thank you, Sean, for joining me on One Symphony. The album is Before and After, performed by the Now Ensemble, and that's on the new Amsterdam label for anyone who wants to check it out wherever you access your music. Appreciate your time, Sean, and I am looking forward to following your career. And I'm grateful that uh, as neighbors, we were able to connect. Yeah, thanks for having me, Devin. It was great and um, great to know that you live in Boulder, not so far. Thank you for joining us on One Symphony and thanks to Sean Fryer for sharing his music and insights. Thank you to all the incredible performers and record labels that made this episode possible. Velvet Hammer and Before and After were performed by the Now Ensemble on New Amsterdam Records. You can check out the music of Sean Fryer wherever you listen to your music and online at seanfryer.com. That's F R 
I-A-R. You can always find more info at onesymphony.org, including a virtual tip jar if you'd like to support the show. Thank you to Sam, Jenny, and Alicia for making this show possible. Please feel free to rate, review, or share the show. Until next time, thank you for being a part of the music. Music.